Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of GovInfoSecurity.com and the Information Security Media Group. I'm speaking with Martin Lipicki, a senior management scientist at the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit research group. Dr. Lipicki was the lead author on a just-released RAND study called Cyber Deterrence and Cyber War. Thanks for taking time to talk. And thank you. What is the main thesis behind cyber deterrence and cyber war? The main thesis of cyber deterrence and cyber war is that conflict in cyberspace is so dissimilar from conflict in the physical media that one should very cautiously take metaphors and understandings and precepts from the world of physical media and apply them to cyberspace. Traditionally, in the Clausewitzian view of war, one of the purposes of fighting, probably the primary purpose of fighting, is to disarm the other side. Think about that analogy in cyberspace, and it falls apart. It's very difficult to disarm another nation's ability to use hackers in cyberspace, and you almost certainly cannot do it with hackers themselves. The worst that I have heard of, if this is still relevant, is the ability to zap somebody's laptop. But in a world in which laptops are $300 each, that doesn't really get you very far. You can always go out and get another one. You can't take down hackers with computer hacking. You can't take... You can take down networks, but if the hackers are, in fact, on your network to begin with, that isn't going to do any good. But the bottom line here is that many of our notions of warfare are based on actually destroying the other side, and that simply doesn't apply in cyber war. There are a lot of people who talk about cyber deterrence by looking at the nuclear realm. In the nuclear age, you had a problem of a weapon for which there was no basic defense. And therefore, we generated theories of deterrence which said, well, we can't keep you from exploding a nuclear weapon on our soil. But what we can do is threaten to do the same to you so that no rational person would think of starting a nuclear war. People who look at cyberspace look at the cost and the difficulty of defense and say, oh, it's impossible. The offense always has an edge. The bad guy is always going to get through. So the only way that we're going to keep our networks intact is to threaten to do likewise to our adversaries. The problem is, in the world of cyber, is that you have a large number of practical difficulties. The number one practical difficulty, and which many people will acknowledge, is trying to figure out who carried out the cyber attack on you. Cyberspace is a virtual construct. You don't have any of the intuitive clues that you have from the world of physical space. A person can attack you without being anywhere near you. A person can attack you without showing any activity that's anywhere associated with the country from which it comes from. It might be felt, for instance, that if you knew where the server was or where the computer was, or more generally the box was, that the attack took place, you had a pretty good idea of who attacked you. But in fact, in cyberspace, that could be completely misleading against anything but a fairly idiotic adversary. Somebody could be coming in from a cyber cafe in any of several hundred different countries. Somebody could be hijacking a Wi-Fi connection, again, in many different countries. It won't be too long. In fact, to a certain extent, it's true now that you can conduct a cyber attack by using a cell phone. And in many of the world's countries, cell phones are not associated with individuals. They are disposable. You can drop a virus into a third-party computer and control that computer and use that computer to launch an attack. So again, a lot of the physical cues that you use for attribution are simply not going to work. But there are a lot of many other reasons why the analogy between nuclear deterrence and cyber deterrence starts to fall short. Is there a role for some type of cyber offense for the United States or other nations? 
cyber offense comes in two categories. One is operational cyber warfare and the other is strategic cyber warfare. In operational cyber warfare, what you're basically trying to do is use cyber means to help physical means do their job. If you want to bomb a particular target, the enemy has air defenses, you want to find some way of dealing with the air defenses. You could use physical means, that is to say blow up the radars. You can use electronic warfare means which is to say make sure the radar doesn't pick up your incoming aircraft, or you can use cyber means, which is a way of confusing the computers in such a way as to either prevent it from picking up the aircraft or picking up the aircraft too late to really do them any good. One of the differences between cyber and other forms of warfare is that cyber is largely untested. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But in some sense, one could say the same about many other forms of warfare, although I think for cyber we know a good deal less about the percentage effectiveness. That's operational cyber warfare, and I believe than any military that is of a mind to conduct real warfare against an adversary ought to be of a mind to conduct cyber war against adversary to the extent that cyber war is a cost-effective means of projecting military force. In many ways, it's not very expensive to generate an offensive cyber war capability, and although the odds of success are not guaranteed, there may be circumstances in which the odds are fairly high enough that it's worthwhile taking the chance and carrying out a cyber attack in conjunction with the physical warfare. On the other hand, you have strategic warfare. The notion that we can get other countries to surrender by disabling their power supply, banking, electricity, phones, etc., etc. The same things that we worry about having been done to us. Here I would say a little more caution is required, partially because of the many uncertainties of cyberspace which is to say you don't always know what you've done. Collateral damage can be very difficult to predict sometimes. It's often very easy to mask the effects. But I would also argue that it's inherent in conflict in cyberspace that there's a certain serious flaw in the matter. Let me step back and start with two items, one of them technical and one of them not. The technical item is if you get into somebody else's system and muck around with it, it's because somebody else's system has a flaw. In theory, and to a large extent, although not 100% in practice, computer systems do what their owners and operators want them to do. That's how they're designed. But computer systems are complex. And because they are complex, they have flaws. And a certain percentage of these flaws will allow bad guys to take over your computers, or bad guys to do something to your computers you don't want them to do. It's in the nature of flaws, however, is that if you realize that you have a particular flaw, you have a great incentive to try to correct it. And if you figure that you, in fact, correcting it is not going to be all that easy, there are various other methods you can have which can either eliminate or mitigate the damage. That is to say, you can reduce access between the relevant network and the outside world. You can also reduce, to a certain extent, your dependence on network. In other words, you have a great deal of discretion about how vulnerable you want to be. Now, let me put that aside for a moment and get to the next point. When you're in the coercion slash deterrence slash compellence game, you're always dealing with some sort of mix between anger and fear. That is to say, if you attack somebody as a way of demonstrating your cyber capabilities, there is a certain likelihood that the other side is going to get angry and being angry will want to hit back. But there's also a certain likelihood that the other side will become more fearful of you and becoming more fearful would not want to hit you back or more generally would want to do other things that would not make you quite so likely to carry out a cyber attack. So anytime that you engage in strategic warfare, 
That is, anytime you engage in warfare, not for the purpose of disarming the other side, but for the purpose of changing his calculus, you always have to ask yourself, where on the fear versus anger spectrum are you going to end up? I would suggest that if you're using a weapon that only gets worse over time, your fear component tends to be more dominant. That is to say, if you take a look at our air campaign against the Serbs in 1999 over Kosovo, we gradually convinced the Serbs over a three-month period that things were only going to get worse for them, that NATO planes could fly in more or less unmolested, and that our choice of targets, which had been previously relatively precise and military-oriented, might at some future point become imprecise or more generally more civilian-oriented. So they were looking at their hand, and it was only going to get worse. In cyberspace, because of the inherent capability of fixing errors, you have the prospect that people will take a hit, maybe one, maybe two, maybe a few, and calculate that, in fact, that they're going to be getting safer rather than less safe over time, which is to say at the cost of reducing their access to the network or at the cost of putting resources into fixes, they have less and less to fear for a cyber attack over the course of your campaign, in which case your fear component is lower and your anger component is unabated. If you try to wage strategic war using cyber war in whole or in large part, you have the risk, in fact, of triggering anger without necessarily triggering fear. Let me give you just one other example. Imagine a scenario under which a large country with an island off its coast wishes to essentially acquire the island. It knows that we might intervene, and it wants to ward us from intervening. So it goes and reaches into the United States and turns out our lights. Now, what happens at this point? Well, they've proven that they can turn out our lights, at least the first time. But what they've also done is they've turned the conflict with their offshore island from a local matter into a global matter, which is to say, prior to the cyber attack, we could say, well, it's an internal matter. It's taking place far away. We don't have a formal alliance with that island. The island was not behaving in a 100% correct manner. We'll let these two guys hash it out. Afterwards, the nature of the conflict changes. It ceases to become a tactical slash operational conflict in a faraway ocean and becomes a strategic conflict. Because if we do not respond to such an obvious attack, then we broadcast to the world that we are capable of having our foreign policy altered. We are capable of backing down from a crisis if somebody goes after our networks. And that's not a message we want to send. To a certain extent, we have a limited say over how vulnerable we are. But we have a great deal of say over how we react to our vulnerability. Deterrence, after all, is in the mind of those being deterred. And if you refuse to be deterred, you're not deterred. Is that why the study suggests the use of negotiations and diplomacy as a means to defend our cyber assets? Well, diplomacy and negotiations are always a means of defending any of our interests. But I would suggest that the alternatives are relatively weak, as it were, not by exception. By contrast, negotiations and diplomacy are relatively stronger. There are other sorts of pressure that we can take going back. For instance, the notion that every nation is connected to a, a network, in essence, into the same network, is basically a notion that we trust nations that are connected to the network to act correctly. If there's a particular nation whose access to the network is causing problems for others in such a way that the problems start becoming a net minus rather than net positive, then the rest of the world has the scope. One could say they have the right to sit to get together and say, well, extending network privileges to this country is in fact a privilege, and this privilege has to be earned by good behavior. And if the behavior isn't good, why are we extending this privilege? I don't want to suggest that all of our responses to cyber warfare are necessarily going to be in the talking stage. There are other actions that can be taken. But you have to weigh your, as it were, array of actions against what they can and cannot do.
Two Army colonels earlier this year proposed that a fourth branch of the military on equal footing with the Army, Navy, and Air Force be created to address cyber offense and defense. What do you think of that idea? It's probably not a good idea because there are essentially three things that you can do in cyberspace. You can do defense, you can do offense, and you can do espionage. I think the espionage angle is fairly well taken care of, and I don't have anything to add over here. We seem to be doing an adequate job within our institutional capabilities. In terms of defense, first of all, you don't have to have a uniform on in order to do defense. In fact, most of our defense is not done by uniform personnel. And second of all, most of what you do for defense is going to be a subset of what you do for general computer administration. In other words, the same guys who make sure that your Microsoft Office is running are also generally the same people who make sure that you don't have a virus on your machine. So most of the activity in defense is going to be bottoms up, and a great deal of it is in practice going to be civilian. That leads offense, and I'm sure these gentlemen are thinking about offense when they do that. I would argue that if you're looking at offense separate and apart from exploitation, you're actually looking at a very small number of folks because it's in the nature of offense that, A, to be good at it, you have to be really, really sharp, and B, you're dealing with a handful of tricks that you want in the hands of the right people. In other words, if you're going after a sophisticated defense, you're going to be relying on finding vulnerabilities that these guys didn't know they had, which is another way of saying those zero-day vulnerabilities. Well, the number of zero-day vulnerabilities is limited. They are actually very precious commodities, and you don't put them in the hands of a mass organization. Well, when you count up the number of people who would be really good at offense, separated from espionage, for which certain sort of mass effects are possible, it turns out to be fairly small. And being very small, I wouldn't put it on the same standing as the other four services. More generally, there's something to be said for not touting your cyber war capabilities too much. Part of what you use cyber war for is to instill uncertainty and doubt in the minds of the adversaries about whether the information that they're getting is correct. And it seems to me, and this may be challenged, that a high profile in this matter is probably not a good thing. That, in fact, you want to surround your offensive cyber war capabilities with as much uncertainty and doubt as you want to induce in the adversary yourself. We see several branches developing these cyber commands to address uh, our cyber interests. Is the military the best organization to defend America's critical cyber assets? Oh, no, not at all. But that's not why the services are organizing it. I mean, their first job is to protect their own cyber assets, and that's a serious piece of work. Let me take from this short no answer and sort of give you an elaboration. A few minutes ago, I said almost all cyber defense is local, and that's true in the civilian business. If, for instance, you're going to keep hackers from an electric power grid, you're going to have to understand the architecture in fairly fine detail of the power grid, the software they use, the trust relationships they put together, how people access the network, and all the minutia, which you're going to have to find out from none other than the power industry. Now, the power industry is not only going to start off knowing its system better than the military can, but they're also going to be able to hire whoever they need to hire to make sure that the system is doing what they want it to do. The military can only come in as an outsider, can only come in as somebody who doesn't understand power generation, because very few military officers actually generate power as part of their job, and comes in as an outside entity that is part of the government, when a lot of private enterprise in this country is very nervous about letting the government see anything that they do. And they only do so under the force of law, so to speak. So the question then becomes, if you had to say, is one highly trained individual working for the military going to be more effective at defending the electric power industry than a similar individual hired by the electric power industry, the answer is clearly not at all.
What is useful is if the various institutions have a strong incentive to defend themselves, which is to say, understand that they will bear all the costs of the, if there is a cyber attack, if their systems go down and customers uh, are deprived of value from their system. And as long as those incentives are correct, and as long as the various institutions are kept informed of the threat and the various technologies and standards, in other words, ancillary roles for government, I don't think that there's a particularly powerful role for the federal government to play in defending the country's cyberspace. Obviously, though, there are a lot of people who may distrust the motives of the private sector, who they feel would be uh, motivated mostly by profit to protect these assets. Now, I guess you're suggesting that profit is a big motivator for them, and, and any penalties that they would have to absorb would get them to do what is proper. That's right. At that micro cost benefit analysis level, the profit motive actually works pretty well. As, as we both suggest, however, that requires that the incentives be correct. There are a lot of people thinking about incentives in the security business, but I don't think it's an unsolvable problem. Do incentives include some form of regulation? It could. For instance, you have your banks, right? Now, what happens if a bank fails? Well, the the taxpayer picks up the money. That's why we have a Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. For that reason, it would not strike me as inappropriate for the FDIC to have somebody on its staff, or more than one person on its staff, to say, First Bank of Omaha, we want to make sure that you folks are not subject to catastrophic failure, which we, the taxpayers, will have to pay for because your cybersecurity is weak. And I think it's incumbent upon you to at least give some indication to us that the chances that your bank will go under because of a cyber attack are minuscule or as they say in technical terms, within epsilon of zero. A similar capability within the Federal Electric Regulatory Commission probably would not be inappropriate also. One of the things that people said proved helpful during the Y2K run-up was a requirement that the SEC had levied on publicly traded corporations that their statements to the SEC discussed their risk from the possibility that they would not mitigate Y2K. And that seemed to me a legitimate role of government. And so that where you have sectors that are already being regulated, and many of the critical sectors are in fact being regulated, I don't think it would be a terrible stretch of government's authority to actually require some demonstration from the folks you're regulating that they have made prudent preparations against that. Thanks, Martin. And thank you. I've been speaking with Martin Lebicki, a senior management scientist at the RAND Corporation and the lead author of the just-released RAND study called Cyber Deterrence and Cyber Warfare. For the Information Security Media Group and GovInfoSecurity.com, I'm Eric Chabro. Thanks for listening.